collective church, I think we can all agree that the ability to rest has been lost in our time. Today's present age has been seen as the most workaholic economy in man's history. No one here can deny this because, to be honest, we Christian or not contribute to that hurried, multitasking, say yes to everything economy. Thus, the reality of restlessness in our contemporary society is epidemic. Most easily, I think all of us would probably think, let's blame our technology, iPhones, which influences sort of hurried economy, internet, whatever you want to say. I mean, what are some other things? I'm trying to think. What are some other things that you could say right now that contribute to a hurried society? Anybody think of one? You want to throw one out? What? Work. Work. What about technology? What's even technology? Anything else? Television. Television? Bird scooters? Huh? (laughs) Those are a gift from God. I'm just joking. But here's the whole thing. As we're throwing out these random, you know, technologies, I started to do a little bit of research, a little bit of digging, and I was struck by the 1960s. A decade, I have in my notes that I say here that I doubt that many of us were alive in, but then I met so many moms. There's anybody who wants to be brave enough to say that they were born in the 60s or alive in the 60s? I am so proud of you, brave women. It's all women. God bless you. But maybe you remember this, but some social scientists have called the 60s the golden years of inventions, bringing mankind to where we are today with internet, with our phones, with bird scooters, and whatnot. So I thought we would just start off this morning with a little bit of fun, and I'm going to show you a list of inventions from the 60s, and you tell me which one has done the most damage to our hurried society. Which one has done the most damage in making our culture busy? That sound good? So I'm going to show a list. Who's okay, these were all invented in the 60s. Every single one of these. Anybody want to throw out some stuff that they think has done the most damage in creating a busy, hurried culture? Lasers. Lasers. The laser. I was hoping. <laughs> that freaking laser. Anybody else? Telephone. Touchstone, the microwave. Microwave is disgusting if you think about what it is. Anything else? Let's nuclearize my food. That is revolting. Easy bake oven? This has destroyed our children. They're eating plaster or whatever. This handheld calculator? <laughs> this is destroying us. Video games? I gotta be honest. I'll tell you which one is believed by most social scientists to believe to be the most damaging. And it's none of the one y'all yelled out. 1964 on Long Island, convenience chain 7-Eleven became the first chain to offer fresh coffee to-go cups. 7-Eleven quickly expanded to-go coffee nationwide, changing the way we move. In the interesting book called Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Changed Our World, extremely boring read, but it says this. (laughs) It says... We've always been a nation on the go. Actually, I feel horrible. If somebody in here wrote that book, it was fine. I feel bad. You never know in Los Angeles. You did a good job. We've always been a nation on the go, on the run, in a hurry. And since the Boston Tea Party, we have been fueled primarily by coffee in that rush to wherever we're going. So it's really quite natural that we would want coffee to go. To me, there is something quite romantic about the idea of coffee or tea in a porcelain glass cup. 
cup and how it forces us to slow down, to pay attention. You see, something this country, our people used to do, slow down and be forced to pay attention. We used to be a country which valued rest. Liquor stores wouldn't sell things on the weekend. Restaurants and gas stations would close down for the weekend, close down for Sundays. But this isn't the case anymore. Unless you're Chick-fil-A, and we all get super upset, right? You know what sounds good? Oh, it's Sunday, right? And let me just say, now, let me just say, I, I don't think paper cups have destroyed our culture. Our, our, our environment, maybe, but not our culture. But they are an indication of of, of, of where we are as a people. And that's a people without pause, and that's a people without rest. Massive uh, revivalist and evangelist D.L. Moody said, show me a nation that has given up the Sabbath, and I will show you a nation that has got the seed of decay. Are we in decay? Are you in decay? If so, the book of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 offer a cure. Hebrews replaces our paper cup lifestyle with fragile teacups and says, relax, chill, rest. Church, we believe this so, we believe this to be so true that we are taking a few weeks to just sit in this truth. The truth of Sabbath and rest, and how the neglect of it can and will have destructive effects on our life, on my life. A decaying effect. A decaying effect. So last week, just as a bit of recap, if you weren't here, we spent some time looking at this massive meta macro idea of God's rest, an idea of heavenly eternal salvation rest. But then the stranger, that being who we're calling this unknown, brilliant, genius, dynamic author of Hebrews, the stranger switches gears and shows us how that macro idea of rest acts out in the micro moments of our lives. So I hope you're excited. Again, we're going to get into it. Because what we're about to talk, today, talk about today, hear me closely, if it's listened to, if it's heeded, if it's observed, it will bring us what we all long for. A stillness that transcends the swarming beehive that is our daily schedule. And so with all of that, let's read starting in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Hebrews. And right off the bat, we see how I would say wacky or insane or crazy this author is, where he goes, for he has somewhere spoken. I just want us to all sit with that. It says somewhere in the Bible. He knows they're going to get it. He's assuming his audience is going to get it. Somewhere, you know. And then he goes, spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. No one here will understand or receive rest apart from those two radical, radical words. God rested. What a fascinating thought that this almighty, incapable of fatigue, this being rested. I don't know if you like God here. I don't know if you trust God here. I don't even know if you believe in God. But... When you leave this place today, I hope that you at least know that the God of the Christian faith is a God of great rest. Collective church, this God created the weekend. 
created the weekend. That feeling we all get every time Friday happens, my wife walks through the door, she kicks the door open, she goes, it's a freaking weekend. Every Friday, it's a freaking weekend. (laughs) Flip through the pages of your scriptures, of the Bible, and you'll be confronted with the fact that God cares about your rest. He is not pro-exhaustion. So again, this is what's so beautiful. The stranger makes this argument by saying, look at God's work week. What did he say? And on the seventh day, God rested. I really, really want this to sink in with us because this is incredible. Because if this is true, then what we have here is the fact that rest is just as crucial in this life as light, as water, as the moon, as the wheat of the field, as the bones in our body. The great explorer John Muir once said, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Thus, if we can't comprehend a lightless world, if we can't comprehend a waterless world, why do we settle for a restless one? Rest is hitched to the very fabric of our creation. Hello. (laughs) Holy smokes. I've said this often, but it's worth a repeat. The way to understand the first couple chapters of Genesis in the Bible is to read it as this. Life as it should be. Okay? And from these, the way it's supposed to be scriptures, we see God give a system for life, not merely a system of life. This is what he's saying. This is a system for your life. So when we reference or read these important chapters in Genesis, what's striking is not just the fact that God rested, but it's why he rested. It's not just the fact that God created rest. It's why in the world would God rest? He's showing us that something is the way it's supposed to be. There's something a way it's supposed to be, but what? Many theologians will make a case that God was depleted. Well, God rested because he was tired. I struggle to marry that with the rest of Scripture. God rested, but not because he was tired in the same way we don't just rest when we're tired. So the other people would say, is God just doing this to make an example? Like when parents eat disgusting broccoli and pretend to get their their kids to do it? Is this God just making an example? Or, and many people believe this, God wanted to escape. God wanted to escape. That being a belief that weeds up in both Christian or not Christian's heart a perception that God has done his thing and now is remote, disinterested, excuse me, and removed. I don't think it's any of those. And yet, the answer to our question will reorient the entire way we live and the entire way we rest. So friends, God did not escape this life when he rested on the seventh day. God immersed himself into life. Let me explain. After each passing day of creation, of Genesis 1 and 2, God would say, does anybody remember? God would say, it is good. It is good, it is good, it is very good. God rested because he was satisfied. He was satisfied, utterly satisfied with the work that has been accomplished. As theology professor Norman Wurzbra puts it, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name, says God's rest has nothing to do with fatigue, as if God could become tired of creative work rather has everything to do with intense 
joy, and peace. The supreme delight and contentment that followed from God's life-giving work. For God, rest is best understood as, complete, as God's complete entrance into life and as God's availability and joy to the beauty and goodness that is there. So church, if we're starting to get this, rest, to unearth it, rest is this sort of like treasure chest of affection and theology. And if we're honest, if we're honest, it is hard to understand and it's hard to possess. I'd be afraid to ask everybody to show by way of raising hand how many of us are actually quite exhausted or don't know how to rest or don't know how to possess rest. Again, if we don't understand it, how in the world could we possibly experience the satisfaction? How could we possibly experience the satisfaction? Mick Jagger had it right. I was just thinking, you guys know what I'm talking about? What am I talking about, Brian? You don't know what I'm talking about. You're nodding your head. You're like, you do, though. <laughs> Called you out. You can't get no satisfaction, right? The stones. Such great theology. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Let's actually do this now. Let's just see it with the many defining purposes and characterizations of rest. I want to rest and slow down with this idea, with this idea of rest as satisfactory. So I'm just going to throw at you a handful of definitions or characterizations that theologians or even Webster has thrown out there. I'm just going to get them all out there. You can write them down if you want. Rest means freedom from the power of whatever worries or disturbs you. Rest can mean to lie down, be settled, fixed, and secure. Rest involves remaining confident, Keeping trust, in other words, to rest in something or someone means to maintain our confidence in it or them. And when these things align, or when these things come alive, that's when we find satisfaction. Now, if I can be honest, I think the giant elephant in the room right now is, excuse me, Casey, I am a Christian. I go to church. I'm in a discipleship group. I've read C.S. Lewis. And on Saturdays, I unplug my phone. And yet, I am not satisfied. And yet, I am not at rest. Sup now. Explain that. Well, bear with me. But I think if we comprehend this, if we comprehend where the stranger's going, and we comprehend what we're saying, that I'm dissatisfied as a Christian... Does that sound familiar? Because it should. This original audience that heard the strangers preach sermon are saying the exact same thing. I'm following this Jesus guy, but I'm completely at a dispeace. We've left Judaism, but now we are not satisfied and we are not at rest. Now, it's from this point on, what church, what I'd like to do is present to you how incredibly brilliant, he's a sheer genius, the author of Hebrews is. By drawing their attention, like he did to Moses, if you've been with us a couple weeks ago, to last week, the wandering wilderness, to the exodus of the Old Testament, he fillets open their entire restless spirits. This is so amazing. You see, for the original Hebrews, they were slaves for 400 years. And for 400 years, their entire identity is in what they did, their work, their effort, their toil. If you couldn't produce a brick, you were probably going to be killed. You were worthless. 
You were worthless unless you could produce something. There was no satisfaction in looking upon their work. They were slaves. But once they were liberated, and only then were they invited into God's rest to see who they truly are or truly were. This is so awesome. I'm going to show you this. The Old Testament book, Deuteronomy, says this. I ain't making this up. Look at this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, therefore, it's therefore a reason, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Collective church, this is the golden ticket. Our ability or inability to rest is a statement about our identity. The original Hebrews in the wilderness would often beg, it was so insane, they would often beg God, can we please go back to Egypt? Send us back. Send us back to slavery. To shackle themselves to their old ways rather than to trust in God and his leading and his provisions. And the audience of the stranger is tempted to do the same thing. I would not doubt that some of us right now are thinking to do the same thing. This Christianity thing is not panning out. And the stranger proves that if you do that, the stranger says, if you leave Christianity, you are claiming an identity for yourselves, and that's one of slave. Now, just to be clear, I, I really want to make sure this is clear. I'm not talking about working or effort or accomplishment in working for income or wanting to have an identity as, as a film director or as a lawyer. That's not what he's talking about. This is something severely deeper. He's talking about working where we can't say no. No, no was a huge, was absent from my vocabulary for so many years, and it crushed me. He's talking about if we're killing ourselves to try to prove ourselves within our work. This type of rest is talking about being disciplined enough to set boundaries. And if we don't do that, then we are truly enslaved. It just, it just makes sense that there is no satisfaction even for Christians. Obviously to know it or even experience it. So this is where rest as resistance plays out. That's why we're calling it resistance. We are to resist our economy's workaholic speed. Resistance to our inclination to prove ourselves that we have worth or value in that work, solely in that work. Resistance to our inward curvature to make something of our worth. Resistance to our culture's worship of time. All we do is worship time and ambitions. Resistance to the tired, you're fired mentality. And if you want to ferociously believe that, if you want to ferociously believe that that type of rest and resistance exists, the stranger says, it's a reality. It's a reality. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Since, therefore, it remains. It remains. I love this. For some to enter and for those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. We talked about that last week. Some of this language can be a bit confusing. Essentially, it's this. The rest offered centuries ago is still offered today. It remains. A lot of what this chapter is is a bit of a recap. So we don't have time to do a lot of recap, but I do not want to move on until we allow the two words of it remains to pierce us. 
The idea that rest remains is a treasure trove. Remains, and you can put this down in your little journals, whatever you want to do. Remains is a promise. Look at verse 1. Therefore, therefore, while the promise, the promise, the promise of rest, his rest still stands. The promise of his rest still stands. Now get this. You guys might geek out on this. You might not, but I did. This is the first time the word promise is used in the book of Hebrews. But from here on out, it'll be used again and again and again. Hebrews having this word appear more than any other New Testament book. Promise, 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 promise. The stranger wants us to know that there were more promises than just entering some territory. If I could just get to that one place, Canaan, promised land, there's more than that. This is a present day promise, a today, a this moment, this moment, this moment promise that we can have. Now I'm going to make a bold claim that will probably upset some people. It's one of my favorite things to do. Bring on the emails. Maybe it won't, I don't know. But a huge theme in Hebrews is this. Endure those who are weary, or to find rest, those who are exhausted. The stranger consistently pleads, persevere. All the way, go all the way with Jesus. Why? So that we might experience the full, the full measure of a promise. The stranger knowing that many then and many in this room right now, in this room, often quit or will quit or attempted to quit from revealed promise to fulfilled promise. Does that make sense? From revealed promise to fulfilled promise. That liminal space, the time in between, people go, mm mm. Some are tempted to even now disband. Meaning, again, I'll just, for clarity's sake, those who want to hop ship before they get or reach land, before the promise is delivered. And the stranger says this to everybody who's tempted to do that the stranger says, that's horrifying. The stranger says that's absolutely horrifying. Look at verse one again of chapter four. Let us fear. Let us fear. Let us fear that any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. The stranger says that fear should strike you and should strike me. Let us fear. I think for many of us, a key factor of our identity crawling back to our work or crawling back to effort or crawling back to enslavement is because we're afraid. I know this has been true of me. There's a really great little teeny moment that has huge repercussions in the Old Testament where Moses went up this massive mountain to receive the law from God. And as he's up there, the bottom of the mountain is filled with redeemed people, recently redeemed people. And he can hear all this commotion going on. And God's like, you better get down there. They're going nuts. And as he goes down to this mountain, what does he see? He sees all these recently redeemed people bowing down and worshiping a gold calf. That, my friends, is why we do not rest. That exact reason. We are afraid of what will happen if we're not there. If we check out, we're terrified. It's straight. FOMO, right? It's the fear of missing out. There's no way this company will be able to survive if I don't show up. There's no way it'll be done right unless I arrive and do it. There's no way the world will continue to turn on its axis unless I send this email. 
So say it another way, God will not keep his promise. Or to say, to say that God can't be trusted, even, that's harsh, to say it this way, God can be trusted, right Christians? I can just be trusted more. I can be trusted more. But the stranger says, there's an even greater fear. Let us fear. This is good FOMO, just so you guys know. The stranger's producing good FOMO. He's like missing out. You want, it's like you're missing out on a party. I read a really old commentary on this, and it was hilarious, because the example they gave was, don't, don't fear be fearing missing out on the gala. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Don't worry, the, the ball. Don't miss the ball. I thought it was funny. Now, I just want to make sure, again, because this stuff is tricky, because he's a bit, you know, squirrely, the author of this, this book is, I just want to make sure that we should not have fear of missing out, of coming short of heaven or eternity for the lack of merit. Of course, and hear, me, hear me now, of course you and I will miss God in eternity if we think it's available through effort. Absolutely. Absolutely, you and I will miss it if we think merit will get us to eternity. Human merit is not the way to heaven. The Bible says it's not of works, lest any man should boast. This type of fear Hebrews is concerned about is failing to trust God through his finishing work, through Jesus Christ. That is what he's talking about. It's failing to trust God, that God's finishing work through Jesus Christ is all that we need. That is his big fear. This is why Hebrews 4, 8 through, excuse me, 4, 8 says this. Read with me. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. Moses wasn't able to take them in. So Joshua, warrior Joshua, his successor did. That's the land of great rest, great promise like we were talking about last weekend. I don't want to get into it. And yet, I want us to see that true satisfaction, true rest is still being offered. Pulling us to see that the ultimate satisfaction we need can't be done through our work or through Joshua. The Bible says you and I cannot free ourselves, satisfy ourselves, or remove fear. It says, the Bible says this, and I agree, Isaiah 57. Hopefully this wakes some of us up of where we're at. But it says, but those who still reject me are like the restless, restless sea, which is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. We are like restless seas apart from the steadfastness of Christ. That's true of followers of Jesus and not in this room. We are restless without him. Or how did St. Augustine say it so many centuries ago? You have made us for yourself, O Lord. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. But because it's not of works, lest any man should boat, we needed somebody to free us from our slavery. And there's this beautiful moment in the Gospels that I hope sticks with us where Jesus calls himself the Lord of Sabbath. Jesus did not call himself the Lord of exhaustion or the Lord of fatigue. He called himself the Lord of Sabbath. So just as rest is a statement of our identity, it is also a statement of his identity. Luke 6, 5 says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. As these religious regulators were freaking out because Jesus was like, and his disciples were getting some grain within their hand and trying to make it edible. And Jesus drops this blasphemous, scandalous bombshell on them as he does in this room and says, no, 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 I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of rest. In other words, he's saying, I'm the one who all these regulations are about. 
I am the one who can give you deep rest for your soul. I invented the Sabbath. I fulfilled the Sabbath. I am the Lord of rest. But, and allow this to slay you, because this is so beautiful, the only way Jesus could be Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of rest is if he himself became restless. Jesus became restless like the sea, which churns up mud and dirt. And when he hung from a cross, he experienced an, an infinity of restlessness by taking on our self-merit righteousness. And by doing so, I think it's, again, we talked about it last week, but in that beautiful moment, we said, it is finished. Oh no, I gotta accomplish, I gotta do, it is finished. The sea went calm. So that now God looks and he cries out as he looks at us and he says, it is good. Just as he did with creation. God is satisfied because of the satisfactory work of Jesus. Now I know that was probably maybe a lot, I don't know, to take in or not. These are metamorphic truths that go against every blood vessel in our body. So God did something. God set rules and rhythms in order to believe it and practice it. To remember, verse 9 explains that God gave us a system for our life. Look at verse 9. So then, this is the conclusion of an argument. When it says, so then, he's concluding an argument. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I'm assuming this is maybe what some here want. A practicality to our rest. A tangible rest. Well, we're going to get it. Right here and right now. But for those note takers, those who enjoy studying scripture, verse nine notes, note that word rest. Circle it a bunch, underline it, draw a little crown above it, whatever you want to do. Why? Because this is a different word rest. This is a new word. Its original language is different. It's the only one of its kind in the entire New Testament. The only one of its kind. So what we have here is the author downshifting and the stranger uses the same meaning of the word that happened back in Genesis chapter two. This is intentional. He's inviting his readers to remember why they Sabbathed. Now, when I say Sabbath, collective church, what comes to mind? You don't have to yell out. But think about it. What comes to your mind when I say Sabbath? Jewish culture. culture. Absolutely. Anything else? I did this earlier with a group of friends over our house. We were talking about the sermon. I think some people said, nah. Maybe they're sitting over there. I don't want to call them out, Andy. Sorry about that. Who said, nah? (laughs) Other people, I mean, it's this idea of antique, old-fashioned, Jewish culture, Sabbath is completely, for many of us, for many of us. And I even think that if, if I were to force some of us to define Sabbath, I think it would be defined negatively, right? Sabbath is not doing something. Sabbath is shutting out the world. Sabbath is passivity. That's how all of you sound in my brain. Sabbath. (laughs) Casey. All of that is a misunderstanding. All of it. Shutting out the world, passivity. Nope, no, 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 no. Remember, God did not escape. Just unplugging our phones on days of rest is not Sabbath. That is escapism. Yes, the word Sabbath means to cease and to stop, but it's what's being ceased from in this system of life that we need to understand. Now, many of you know, 
uh, actually this time last year, I was about three weeks into my own sabbatical. It was a prolonged time of Sabbath. And even thinking about it right now makes me a bit emotional. Due to some, some, some severe trauma in my life, I was clinically diagnosed PTSD. But I was terribly, terribly restless this time last year. And there's this, this, this churning up of mud and dirt. And I needed to get away. And, and, and this church, you guys gifted me with that. You guys gifted me with that. And I'll never be able to um, express the gratitude or ever repay you. <clears throat> I was not planning on getting emotional. <laughs> but I will say, <clears throat> man, it changed my life. And so this church, what's so beautiful about this church this is your first time here, this is a beautiful church which cares severely about one another's well-being and health and rest. But what I learned and what I was forced to learn in the best way possible in inescapable stillness, which that's what it was, what I was learning during that entire duration, which you guys gifted me with, was my humanity and his divinity. And so many here would probably go, you need you need." time away to do that? <laughs> it's sort of like this simple, well, yeah, duh. But it, that truth is meant to be realized in rest. I experienced something that I know that probably maybe none of you will actually ever get to experience. Sabbath rest as resistance is ceasing to believe we are not above creation or the creator. Sabbath brings us back down to earth because I'll tell you what, I for too long as a pastor thought I was omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. I really did. And it killed me. Sabbath is a rhythm. Rest needs to be a rhythm of reorientation that I am not God and he is. A rhythm which, we're in which we trust Christ's work as we rest in trusting our own. My sabbatical, and I will say this so firmly and so boldly, was the hardest thing of my entire life. I know many of you are probably thinking, if you've met my daughter, no, raising Violet's the hardest thing. No, no, no. (laughs) Sabbatical. Sabbatical is the hardest thing. Every day was a grinding strive to rest. Yes, striving. I want us to see that that word. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. First, the language I just want us to see as we move on always talks about Sabbath rest as entering into. It's always you're going to enter into something. Notice that. Why is that important? Because what it tells us is that it can't be man-made or self-created. But there's another word here I think that is more, understand, is more antithetical to rest, right? Strive to rest. That sounds so antithetical. That sounds insane. That's an oxymoron. Strive to rest. 
But I will tell you this, if that immediately went into our mind, we have a crooked view of rest. To strive is to enter in with haste or zealous engagement. That's what that word means, to enter in with haste or zealous engagement. So what I want to do is actually make this time a little practical, if that's okay. I want to make it very practical. This ultimately isn't what this text calls us to do, but since it's Sabbath can be lost in our generation in this culture, I thought it would be helpful. Um, and we're going to get more practical in a couple of weeks, but I thought it'd be helpful just to touch on it now for a little bit if you guys are down with that. Basically, this is going to help us figure out how to rest. Show us how to do this. So I've broken it down to how we're supposed to interact in our time of rest. And I'm literally just trying to give the most digestible elementary of ways. Like no joke, I called it the ABCDs of Sabbath, of rest, to just make it so clear. But before I give these out, just know this. Sabbath or rest is a gift. It's not about this day. It's not about that day. It's not about this moment or that moment or about details of how we rest. And anytime legalism or religion creeps into rest, making it a duty, it is no longer a gift, just so you know. So let's do this. A, write an A in your journal. A, activity. It totally feels like biology class right now, right? Maybe just to me, maybe to Brian, a little bit. <laughs> Brian doesn't say a whole lot to any, anymore, ever since I called him out about Mick Jagger. <laughs> it's fine, you don't have to know anything about Mick Jagger. Activity. Do things you love on moments or days of Sabbath and rest. Do things you love. It is not about passivity. In Jewish tradition, you would get double the brownie points if you make love on the Sabbath. You are supposed to cook and eat as much as possible because there's an unspoken rule that there's no dieting on Sabbath. Zero. You eat as much fattening, greasy food as you possibly can on Sabbath. Okay? Take hikes, make music, go to the park, be active, do things which are life-giving. You can't do things, and I will say this, it's called avocation, you can't really do something like this, but something that's more considered your job. So I would probably encourage, I'll pick on Brian again, I am so sorry, don't sit in the front row ever again. I would probably encourage you not to make a film on your day off. Does that make sense? I would encourage you, John Mulraney, I'm going to pick on you, not to do lawyer things on your day off. I know it's a huge temptation for you. Overruled! Objection! Whatever you do. <laughs> However you do it. Don't do that. So you have to find things and do things which are life-giving, but not really pertain to your work, even though that might be life-giving. B. Break. All right. Break. We must also know that doing nothing is doing something. Doing nothing is doing something. Not laziness or slothfulness, but... Doing nothing is doing something. Some rest, some tap, Sabbaths are active, and that's great, and that's things we love. But also, what's known in Jewish community, that to nap on the Sabbath is considered the highest form of trust. To nap on the Sabbath is considered the highest form of trust, that God has taken his rightful place within our hearts. That means God is constantly in the highest form of trust for me. Always. I will say, this is one of the harder rhythms to learn on that sabbatical that you guys gifted me with, was that doing nothing was doing something. Because I needed to, in that time, find full satisfaction in what God and God alone could do. I wasn't here pastoring, where I was finding my satisfaction before. I was completely removed, torn away from that, and said, I've got to find it in God and God alone. All right, C, contemplate. 
Did you laugh at that? Did you laugh at that? You could laugh louder next time. This whole room is great. Now, what I love about this, if you guys don't know anything about Jewish history with Sabbath, this is great. Not only did people rest, but guess what they also made them do? They made animals rest. Stop, puppy. Stop, cow. They made animals rest. You need a Sabbath. They would do that, but guess what they would also do? They would let their land rest. They would, every seventh year or so, they would let their land rest. Did you know that? And here's what's beautiful. Here's what's beautiful. Jewish farmers would let whatever happened to grow in their crops, in their fields, grow. As it would come up and weed up, they let it come up and weed up. The metaphor here cannot be lost cannot be lost. We need to prioritize time within our weeks to let whatever comes up in our hearts and minds come up. Far too often, a massive reason that we don't want to rest is because we, our time gets, or excuse me, our thoughts or our brain gets time to unwind. We get time to process. But the faster we go, it's like a fishing rod. But when we rest, it pulls it out. And that needs to happen. That needs to happen. We need to let come up whatever will come up and contemplate or reflect on that emotion, review that pain, consider that gift, meditate, whatever you want to call it. We just have to sit with it. So when that time, Sabbath, or rest comes up, we need to remind ourselves. This is contemplation. Remind ourselves to the, to the point of worship. To the point of worship. Not just like, oh, God's cool, animals rested, contemplate. No, we need to remind ourselves to the point of worship the story of who we are, the work that has been not done, that there's nothing left to achieve or earn. So if you're following me, prayer and worship are a massive part, a critical part of our rest. Regular time of devotion and reading scriptures and listening to God. And I'm going to say this very firmly, that unless we do this, we are not resting fully. Again, sure, our bodies may get rest in that time, but our restless hearts will continue to spool unless we take time to contemplate. Because how God rested was he too contemplated on all the work. He said, it was good, it is finished. So distraction-free, glass, coffee cup, solitude, silence at times. And if you actually try to practice this, it'll be the hardest thing you ever do. Has anybody just tried to sit for 10 minutes a day in pure silence? It feels like prison. I promise you it gets easier over time. It gets easier. All right, lastly, D, we're going to be wrapping it up. D, discipleship. The entire point of rest in these verses, listen closely, is not just how we rest physically or emotionally. It speaks to one's spiritual condition. Rest is a matter of yours and my discipleship. We must do as the spiritual, excuse me, the stranger said last week, take care. Remember, that's meaning responsibly monitor your own spiritual condition. That's discipleship. So I'm going to make a claim, again, to Christians here that if we are struggling to rest or not truly resting, it's because we're not responsibly monitoring our own spiritual conditions or rejecting it. We're in danger, the book of Hebrews says. So if you analyze, and I'm going to end with this, bear with me, but I want us to see this. If you can bring up, I have this list of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you guys have read the Ten Commandments in a while. Some of you are thinking, oh, Lord, heavens, no, what kind of church? Is-? Just bear with me. This is good stuff. This is good. Also, just be thankful. I've been thinking about this this week. Be thankful that the Ten Commandments weren't given while they were still in slavery. Anybody thought about that? Saying, act this way and then I'll save you. These were given after redemption and saying, now that you're going to live in my sort of 
you know, theocratic world, as me as your king, this is a beautiful way to live. Just be thankful they weren't given in before, or they were given in slavery. What I want us to see is this. Jewish rabbis, Jewish traditions show us that the Sabbath, number four, is a bridge. It's a bridge. The first part are your relationship to God. The last part is your relationship to man. And it's saying the bridge to being able to do so is your ability to rest. Our ability to rest. Also, just allow this to sink in. We're mandated to rest. Yes, please. If you're not a Christian, oh, mama. This is the Christian faith. This is good stuff. We are commanded to relax, to rest, to contemplate. So this is important for our discipleship because it says unless we keep Sabbath, the Jewish tradition will say five through 10 will not be kept. So in other words, those around you, me to you and you to me, me, you need to rest and I need to rest for one another. Discipleship groups, we need to be calling people to rest. The most important thing we can give to one another is the healthiest version of ourselves, and health comes by rest. So I want to land this plane and I want to do it with comparison. Look at verse 10. The book of Hebrews is constantly comparing. And look at this though. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Comparison, comparison this entire time. Jesus and angels, Jesus and Moses, Jesus and prophets. Us in the wilderness, but now who are we compared to? You and I are compared to God. We are compared to God Almighty. And it's this ironic thing that we mimic God and rest to remember that we're not God at all. And I want us to carry this verse with us in our time of response because I invite us today to respond in song. You can come down to the carpets and kneel. You can raise your hands in worship. But I want us to sing in such a way where we're proclaiming, where we're singing, where the intent in our heart is to say, God keeps my world, therefore I do not. God keeps my world, therefore I do not have to. You can come up. There's communion on here on my right and on my left in the stacked cups. Trusting and believing that the gospel is that this was done in accomplishment. The gospel is this absolutely 100%. It's about accomplishment, but it's about Christ accomplishment. It's about coming up and taking communion, saying, God keeps my world, therefore I do not have to. And lastly, did you guys know we have a prayer team, an incredible ministry here? There's going to be people right there between the trees and up against the shelves. And I'm just going to say this about our prayer time response. I believe it's probably the most unexplored and avoided of all ways to respond in our church. And yet one of the most crucial reasons we gather to allow one another to exhort, to intercede, to cover, to go for us, to aid us in our fatigue. If you're restless today, would you allow the church to be the church and pray for you this morning? Just, just, you can just go up to them and say, I'm exhausted. And they're going to immediately go, let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. To go there and ask for prayer, to believe that God keeps my world, therefore I do not have to. Let's pray.